Welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Andre Mardo. Okay, today's episode takes a rather controversial look at an important topic, invasive alien species. Invasive alien species are widely considered to be one of the five main drivers of biodiversity loss worldwide, as well as causing damage to economies. Invasion biology is an established field with thousands of experts involved in progressing its body of knowledge. The vast majority of them are focused on the negative aspects of these species and how to deal with them, which is understandable given the fact that this is one of the five major drivers, of course. But some conservation biologists, like today's guest, have a slightly different perspective. Martin Schlepfer is an ecologist and senior lecturer at the University of Geneva. While he shares many of my concerns and those of most conservation biologists, he also advocates for a more holistic approach that takes into account the way values affect our understanding of invasive alien species and how to deal with them. And he focuses on what is likely to be achievable with limited resources to tackle the issue. I expect that most conservationists will disagree with some of what Martin has to say. They, like me, may be concerned that any mention of non-native species that does not condemn them could open the floodgates and affect public support for dealing with this issue. But I think, just like the partisan political debates that are so prominent in the world these days, keeping a conversation going in good faith is the swiftest route to a robust consensus. This is an argument for improving our understanding of the issue from angles that are less often considered by many professionals in the field. Given the controversial nature of the subject, I'd like to just add a word to vouch for my guest. Martin has many years of diverse experience in this field and related fields in various parts of the world. And perhaps more importantly, he is a conservation biologist who doesn't just talk the talk, but also walks the walk, so to speak. For environmental reasons, he's been a vegetarian for more than 20 years, and he has not taken a transoceanic flight for work nor pleasure over the last eight years. So although I won't commit to guaranteeing that all Martin's views are correct, I am convinced that they come from a place of deep consideration and good intention. Okay, so to start off with, and before we get into the main topic, how did you become interested in conservation and ecology? If you ask my mom, she would say that there actually never was much of a career choice. So when I was young, I was actually raised by Swiss parents, but I was living in California at the time, or we were living in California. And my mom would describe me playing in the creek and bringing back tadpoles and frogs and snakes and and even later, when I was a teenager and we were back in, in Switzerland, she would describe me watching nature-based TV programs rather than a lot of the music videos that a lot of my peers were, were listening to or watching. So it felt always, in my case, more as a calling than an actual decision. And I feel quite fortunate that I've been able to stay within this vein of work and within research and then within... Uh, also working for the state at some occasions, but always pursuing sort of these types of investigations and the cause as well, sort of like looking after nature, trying to protect it and trying to find 
the right type of relationship that we want to have between the human society and nature. And then as far as your career trajectory is, con is concerned, so from when you left school, what was the sort of step-by-step -step sequence of things after where you are now? Yeah, I jumped around quite a bit, like as in a typical academic. So um, you can probably hear from my voice, I've spent quite a few years in North America, although I'm, I'm Swiss, and I did all my public schooling in Switzerland. And then I went to McGill University in Canada for my bachelor's degree, which I did in biology. And I then did a PhD at Cornell University, which is in, in New York State, again in ecology and evolution with an emphasis in conservation biology. And then I sort of pursued a, first a traditional academic route with a postdoc at the University of Texas. I got a faculty position in upstate New York in Syracuse. But then I met my uh, future wife, who's also Swiss, when I was back on, on holidays once. And we decided to move back to Europe to be closer to our respective families. So that led me to uh, an interesting position working for the French government on invasive alien species in the beautiful city of Rennes, which is in Brittany. And eventually I found myself moving back to Switzerland, to Geneva, my hometown, first in the private sector, working as a consultant for a couple of years. But then inevitably, I found academics calling me back into the fold and then one thing led to another and another course led to another and then mentoring of students. And now I find myself full time as a senior lecturer in the Institute of Environmental Sciences, which is an interesting interdisciplinary institute, precisely because, for example, for those of us who work on biodiversity conservation, we also are encouraged to look at the relationship between nature and society. So it's integrating not just the, the biological sciences, but also the social sciences. You described yourself as a new conservationist. I wanted to ask you if you could define what that means. Yeah, so some of your listeners may not be familiar with the term. I wasn't myself as recently as a few years ago because it's something that the social scientists have been doing. It's been interesting, I, say, I would say, as a biological scientist to realize just how much interesting work has been going on for the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years by the social scientists. I always knew it was there. And I don't think I realized until the last three or four years just how relevant a lot of that was. So the, uh, some social scientists, like I could cite Bram Brucher, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, and others have been observing some of the debates going on within the conservation biology world. And they've been analyzing it and realizing that there's different systems of values that people hold within, within the conservation biology world. My understanding is that on one hand, you have people who view the world in a way where humans, whether they realize it or not, they view humans as being a fundamentally separate species from the rest of others. And as a consequence of this uh, distinction, they may view a lot of the actions and the agency of humans as fundamentally undesirable or something that disturbs the natural order. And these are people who are often put under the label of neo-protectionists who favor, for example, creating nature reserves that exclude all human activities or who think that the best type of nature is the untouched type of nature. And it's important to notion that these are not clear-cut categories. A lot of people find themselves a little bit between both or they can change with time or uh, within a group you'll often find a mix. But a second category is one that's called a new conservationist and that's one group that perhaps views the human species as really integral into the 
the broader system. And of course, as biologists, we all know that humans are a species and that we interact, but it's funny how philosophically, when it comes to deciding what's important and what's uh, not important for conservation, these types of values actually do uh, influence how we view the world. So the new conservationists, as I understand it, are a little bit more open to the presence of humans, accepting them, also perhaps a little bit more concerned about uh, human concerns, so poverty alleviation, especially in developing countries, and uh, willing to accept that there's many ways in which we can protect nature, and it doesn't have to be just the pure, untouched version that is of paramount importance. So today, at least, I feel myself better aligned with the new conservationists, and it, at least for me, it's been enlightening to realize that the hard science, the biological sciences, is not the end-all, be-all. You can't answer every debate, including the conservation debates, with simply more data. That, in fact, these underlying value systems heavily influence, first of all, the type of data that we collect, the type of science that we do, but then how we interpret it as well. And I'm sure that we'll get into it at some point, but this can lead to some really interesting debates about, for example, introduced non-native species and how we should deal with them at some point. So there we go. Back to you being a new conservationist, um, how did that happen? What was the trigger? Was it a trigger or was it a gradual process? Yeah, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to, to try and retrace it. I think part of it has to do with one's personality. I think there's – I know that you interviewed Michelle Marvier in, in the past in your podcasts, and there's a certain type of science – uh, where you're always looking for those shades of gray and challenging the predominant notions. And it's just sort of this contrarian streak that I definitely have within me. On the other hand, I do remember when the Society for Conservation Biology was holding its annual meeting in San Jose, California. It was a number of years ago. It may even be as much as 20 years ago at this point. And I recall on a field trip, it was during the conference, it was one of these typical afternoon breaks where you get to mingle with people and we were walking through a nature preserve just outside of San Jose and we were with a guide, a local guide, and I was I was born in California. So my parents were Swiss, but I was born in California. And so I have a a fairly strong level of affinity and imprinting with the sort of uh the smells and the sights of there. And I felt I was feeling really at home and feeling good and it was a beautiful day. And one of the members of our group inquired about uh, a particular species and I don't even remember which species it was exactly. It was a beautiful flower by the side of the road. And the guide said, oh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, but uh, it's, it's a non-native species. It's one of the many non-native species that we have here. And the lady at that point, her face went into a form of disgust, and she stomped on the flower. like She's like, oh, no, that's terrible. And she stomped it. And I think at the moment, I didn't really react much or think much of it, but I think it, it sort of was one of the seeds of doubt this moment of cognitive dissonance. I was like, wow, hold on. There's this beautiful flower that everyone's uh, admiring and appreciating. And then you get a little piece of information, a label in essence, that doesn't tell us anything about whether this flower is good or bad, except for that it's not from here. And then all of a sudden it's being assassinated basically by a, by a conservation biologist, no less. And so you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, and I think I sort of carried that that event in my mind for a number of years and slowly led me to think about uh, how value systems can lead us to manage our natural resources in one way or another, based on also perhaps even I don't the myth of what type of nature we wish to have. 
like we mentioned when we were talking about sort of uh, neo-protectionists versus not uh, new conservationists, I think the the neo-protectionists have this myth of the pure nature that's untouched and unsoiled by humans, whereas the the new conservationists are like, well, you know what? Um, yeah, humans move things around, and some of them may be bad and have un- undesirable effects, and those should be managed. But some of them may just be well; they are what they are, and they they're not necessarily by definition. Uh, something that's undesirable. That's probably one of the events. And then I think my uh, contrarian nature just took it from there and started questioning all sorts of a priori assumptions that we have within conservation biologists, namely, and one of them I started asking questions, well, is a non-native species good or bad? And once you've asked yourself that question, you realize in the literature, there's all these cases, at least it was the case like 10 years ago, where you have these indices of conservation biology, where the presence of a non-native species alone was an indication of how bad the environment was. So it was a total tautology. You're like, oh, well, it's, it, there is a non-native, therefore it's a, it's a destroyed environment. Like, well, why is that? That's totally uh, absurd when you think about it. So anyway, the, the thinking started that way, and then you just sort of carry it from there. That's a good intro into the, the main topic, invasive alien species. Tied up in there are the three words, right? The invasive, alien, and well, the species bit is fairly straightforward. But can you just kind of define, especially for the non-conservationist listeners, what that means and why is invasive alien species as a concept a big deal in the field of conservation? The concept of an invasive alien species is a legitimate conservation concern. It stems from the fact that there have long been observations of species that were indeed moved around by humans, either intentionally or accidentally. And the observations were made that once this new species arrived in its new environment, it could rapidly grow and dominate in the sense that there's many individuals with a strong ecological effect that could, in some cases, have devastating consequences for native species, including sometimes endemic species, in other words, species that are found only in that site. So that's where the the sort of the field takes its origins, is from these types of observations, which often occurred on small islands. And if you think of examples like of Hawaii or the Galapagos, where there's very well-documented cases, or New Zealand for that matter, there's unique ecosystems with high levels of endemism, really a form of nature that is beautiful, that occurred as a result of evolution that happened in isolation. And then this is then impacted, to not say destroyed, by whatever, goats or mongoose that humans have brought with them and then have devastating effects. So the definition formally, first of all, is there's a whole bunch, but generally they take into account the fact that you have a species that's moved outside of its traditional range, usually implicitly that means a a recent historical range. And then once it arrives in its new habitat, it either grows quickly or spreads quickly. And uh, in some definitions has a very negative impact either biologically so it impacts native species or economically, so it like can damage crops or harvests, or from a human health perspective by spreading a disease. So those are usually 
the different definitions turn around things like that. I find it interesting that invasive and alien are always paired together, you know, because a species can be invasive without being alien and it can be alien without being invasive, right? That's, that's a, a really important point. One of the interesting things that one discovers once one delves into the literature is that a lot of um, attention, justifiably perhaps, but a lot of the attention is focused on the very small number of introduced species. So I, I, I prefer the word introduced species rather than alien, precisely because I think alien has a negative connotation, which I don't think is justified. There's lots of people who have written about this, about how the, the language that was often used when talking about these introduced species is very connotated. First of all, there's this notion of alien, in other words, it's not part of us, it's, it's them, and therefore it's not desirable. And often the language is very militaristic. There's a battle against invasive alien species. We have to fight the war against aliens. And so a lot of people have been unpacking that. And in addition, what's interesting is to realize just how the proportion of non-native species that actually are problematic, in other words, the, the proportion of non-native species that are invasive is actually very small. It's on the order of depends on the environment, it's probably within the order of 5 to 10% max of all the introduced species, which means that you have 90%, maybe even more, depends on how you count and how you define things, of these introduced species that are either benign, in other words, they're neutral, or they may be positive, or we don't know yet, and it probably depends on who's evaluating and in what context, but the vast bulk of these species are not problematic as far as we know today. And so I am strongly in favor of disentangling those two words. I don't think that we should always talk about invasive alien. And it's interesting how even among biologists, even conservation biologists, for most people, they have a really hard time distinguishing those two scenarios, namely the introduced species that's not harmful from the introduced species that is indeed invasive and harmful. Most of them have a a really hard time. I recall when with uh, my colleagues Dove Sachs and Julian Olden when we published a paper, I guess exactly 10 years ago, about the potential conservation value of non-native species, most people had a really hard time understanding that we are talking about the non-invasive non-native species. They were kept coming back, well, look at how harmful they are and look at how much they're spreading. We're like, yeah, but that's just a minority of cases. We're not talking about those. And we had a really hard time getting people to open their minds and see the 90% of the other non-native species that are present within our environments. They're functioning, they're embedded within the food webs, they interact with other species, including our own. And we, we think that's, or I still think that's a really uh, subject of investigation where there's a lot more to be done in that area. But then what do you have to say to the argument that a species being alien to a place, doesn't that mean that that species has more of a potential to become invasive than any species that's already there. Statistically speaking, if you took a hundred non-native species within an area and a hundred equivalent matched native species, the chance that one of the non-native species will at some point become problematic is statistically slightly larger. But for an individual species that you have to decide whether to manage or not, or eradicate or not, you have no guarantee whether that species is going to be one that might become harmful in the future or not. 
So, and, and the difference between the natives and the non-natives is much smaller than I think most people believe. I mean, I think, so we're really talking about a statistical difference. So the distribution curves, for those of you who are used to thinking in statistical distributions, they may be non-overlapping, but they're just very slightly offset. In other words, the vast majority, if I give you a non-native species, you can't tell me with a high probability of confidence, this will indeed become problematic. You could say, okay, belongs to a group, which on average might be slightly more problematic in the long term. But in the meantime, a lot of these species are here. So I acknowledge that science, and I think that there's a statistical issue. But one of the one of the consequences of being in the institute where I am currently, where we interact a lot with policymakers and people who work for the state or work for the government, they're faced with very concrete uh, decisions. Okay, okay, here we are in the field. Here we have this non-native species. What do we do? Do we manage it or do we not manage it? And in the vast majority of the cases, the the evidence that would allow you to justify the expenditure of public taxpayer money, I think, is fairly weak. And in most cases, the the argument leans in favor of, oh, let's observe, let's follow, and let's just uh, see what happens. I think it, rather than intervening, especially in a in a aggressive form of management that involves killing organisms. It's a case of allocating resources, right? I'm thinking of my my home country, South Africa. There's a list of, last time I checked, 300 and something quite severely invasive plant species. And I've seen the effects of that. They really cover the landscape and they convert what is normally a very diverse ecosystem into an absolute monoculture where, you know, there's literally nothing else there, nothing else that can, can penetrate the, the thicket. But um, it's a case of, what to do on the ground, right, in the practical situation and how to weigh up whether to kind of accept a species into the landscape or to do something to get rid of it. Yeah, so there's a couple of interesting things that could be said about that. One is that there's one area where I agree quite strongly with the traditional invasion biologists who tend to have sort of a more neoprotectionist type of view of the world where all non-natives by default are viewed with suspicion and are guilty until proven innocent. But one place where I agree with them is that I do think it's worthwhile trying to do everything possible to limit the spread of species between, let's say, regions or continents because of the possibility of unintended effects like the ones that you mentioned that are, have occurred in the Feinbos uh, ecosystem in South Africa, or on the islands like we, in Hawaii or the Galapagos, where you have really the, the possibility of a novel uh, organism that takes over and spreads. So I would actually favor limiting the transport of animals and plants between continents and doing a lot of quarantines upon arrival. And even upon the discovery of a novel plant or animal species from a different continent, like for example, if you, uh, one of the, the actions, since we're talking about practical actions, one of the actions that's advocated by invasion science is that if you see a very small population that has just begun to establish itself, that that's the moment to, to take what they call the nuclear uh, option, which again is a very militarized option, which means you just put a lot of resources into blasting them into oblivion. And that's actually an area where I would I would favor that approach. I think it's it's not worth taking the risk. Where I disagree, perhaps a little bit more with invasion biologists, at least the traditional ones, 
is about precisely those many, many species that are already firmly established. And I take a little bit more of a, a live and accept type approach and sort of try and see the glass half full rather than half empty. Now, what's interesting is with, with climate change and how that's sort of mixing the cards up quite a bit within the conservation world. I mean, some of our listeners may be familiar with this idea that one should actively move species to help them track their suitable living conditions as humans disturb the climate. And that's an interesting case, again, where I, I've been reading the literature and, and seeing that a lot of those, what I call the hardcore invasion biologists, are even reluctant to do that. And I think I understand where they're coming from. I think they're, they're fundamentally saying, look, humans have messed up the planet in many ways, including by changing the climate, rather than accepting it and then helping species to track their what we call bioclimactic envelope or their suitable living conditions, we should not even accept climate change and we should fight it. And I actually find that rather honorable. Uh, it's a very, um, it's an extreme position, but and it's a very purist position. They're like, okay, we're not going to move species because that's accepting climate change and climate change is undesirable. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm more of, you know what? I, I know the climate science, even if we stop all of our carbon emissions today, climate change is still going to continue for a couple of decades. Given that, and that's a given, there's nothing we can do about it. There's no wishful thinking. I would favor passively, or in some cases, maybe even actively letting species move around to make sure that we have some species for the future generations. A very concrete example of where that takes place to come back to very practical notions. I was involved in a study about all the tree species in the city of Geneva, where, where I work. And there the question was, well, how many species do we need? How much canopy cover do we need? And which species should we be planting? And there was a really interesting analysis that was done. It's, it's a, a so-called twin cities approach. What it does is to help people visualize what the climate is going to look like in the future, according to different IPCC scenarios. They sort of say, okay, take your city like Geneva, and we know what the climate is like today. Now, if you want to understand what the climate is going to be like in 50 years or 100 years, you find a city in the world that today matches those climate conditions. And what you see for a lot of continental Europe is that even within the next 50 or 100 years, our climates are going to resemble cities that currently are found in Southern Europe or in North Africa. And it's, it's really eye-opening. And you know, a tree can live one, two, three hundred years. What that means is that today, when you're planting a species, it has to survive our rigorous winters in Switzerland today. But in a century from now, it's going to be dealing with temperatures and climates that are considerably different. And that does raise the question, do you want to be planting native species in the urban environment of Geneva, knowing full well that the chances of that tree surviving are fairly small over the long run? Or do you want to hedge your bets a little bit and plant either varieties of the same species, but from Southern Europe, or even species that come from Italy, uh, Bosnia, Northern Spain, that are not native, but at least you know they can survive and they have a good chance of surviving and therefore of our children and our grandchildren having beautiful, magnificent trees in the city or not. And I think that was, a, again, a, a really eye-opening experience because a lot of, of my colleagues 
who were sort of traditional conservation biologists with really pro-native views realized the limitations of that philosophy and it helped them open up to at least saying, you know what, we shouldn't be moving things around willy-nilly, but at least we should open up our minds to the possibility of shifting things around locally. And I realize that's a different sort of subject from transcontinental species movements and the, and the impacts they can have. But it's, uh, again, it, it pleads in favor of a less dogmatic view and at least being a little bit open to the potential value of non-native species. At least that's my view. Another argument, I guess, in favor of of not damning unconditionally the uh, introduced species would be cases in which the uh, introduced species benefit communities. They might not benefit biodiversity, but they may benefit human communities. Situations where a non-native species may represent a biological harm, but something that's socially or economically desirable is really interesting. I'll tell you an anecdote. I was recently listening to a a talk about nature-based solutions. And so for those of you who are not familiar with that expression, nature-based solution is basically advocating, it's it's a form of of acknowledging that species provide useful functions to society. So it's sort of a spin off the ecosystem service concept. And their general philosophy is that, look, there's lots of cases where we solve our needs and our problems with an engineering-based solution or what they call a gray solution by building a wall or building a tank or building a water treatment plant where we could rely on a more natural solution that also serves multiple other benefits or multiple other functions, which I think is a really good approach. But in this person's speech or talk, she started talking about using only native species in, the, in their nature-based solutions. And I was like, well, what, what would you do if a local community in a developing country you know, has been relying for a couple decades on a non-native species as a solution, for example, against limiting erosion downstream of rice paddies? And the answer that this person gave was, well, I would just explain it again until they understood that native species are more important. And I cringed and I was like, oh my God, this is like typical colonial thinking, trying to impose our sort of nativist Western values on these people. When in fact, there, here's a case where you're trying to get people on board to use, you know, a nature-based solution, but you're so dogmatic about it that you're unwilling to open the possibility to a non-native species that may provide a very good socioeconomic function. And yet it's still a living organism and is better than a gray solution. So Again, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. The danger of the argument that I'm holding, namely that non-native species can in some cases be beneficial, is that it, it becomes much harder. Uh, you, you have to start doing almost case-by-case thinking. And of course, that's much more difficult than a, a, a big lumping argument that all non-natives are bad and you should just always uh, exclude them and always eradicate them if you can. It's a much simpler approach, but I think we have to trust our collective intelligence to make the nuances and do the case-by-case work where if you have good reasons to believe a non-native species is going to be harmful, well, then you don't spread it, you don't use it. And sometimes we just don't know and we can't control everything. And at some point, we just have to sort of say, you know what, we did the best we could. But overall, my bet is that a lot of these non-native species are going to become extremely important, not only socioeconomically, but also biologically with time, especially in this rapidly changing world that we have created. 
because of climate and I guess for, for other reasons as well. That means that also a native species can become invasive because suddenly the environment changes, it uh, becomes, for example, hotter and drier. So some of the, let's think about plants in, in particular, some of the plants in that area are going to suffer as a result of that and other ones are going to benefit. So you'll get certain uh, plants becoming dominant. And this is, again, going back to South Africa as an example. It's interesting, the term bush encroachment has been used for, I don't know if it's still used, actually, I might be out of date, but when I was at university, it was used to describe the invasion of native tree species into grassland or savanna habitats. So basically, open habitat was becoming closed because probably climate change, at that stage they believed it was climate change, and the increase in CO2 was favoring trees over, over grasses. But one thing that's interesting is that bush encroachment was kind of put into a completely different category. But the point is, presumably with the environment changing as much as it is, we're going to see more and more and native species becoming invasive. I think that that raises a really fundamental issue that's often unspoken within the conservation world. Namely that, again, it sort of comes back to this, I want to say the myth of nature that we have. At least when I went to school, I was sort of implicitly sold the story that nature is somehow pure and it reaches its own equilibrium and mature force that has a certain stability and resilience. And I think we were sold, and again, this is a case where I think that our social and cultural background probably really imprints on how we do science and how we view nature. I think that we were sold an image of nature, I almost want to say like almost a biblical version of nature where God came down and gave us a pure solution and it's stable and that's the way it is. In fact, there's been some interesting work that I've read that showed how even Carl Linnaeus, who gave us the binomial taxonomy for naming species with the genus and species. I mean, he was a very religious person. And so his view was that God put every species in one place, and that was the perfect place for it, and it shouldn't change. So I think we have this very static notion of science where species belong and they don't change. And of course, we've all taken courses in evolution and biogeography, and we know that things come and go certainly at a rate and a scale it's different from what we're observing today but still every ecosystem so this is a very philosophical question do you feel some people believe that ecosystems are a whole that is cohesive that has their own intrinsic properties and some people think that ecosystems are a mashing a mix of various different species and they somehow duke it out and find their way to survive and i'm much more in the latter camp thinking that assemblages are constantly changing, dynamics are constantly changing, and we are perhaps seeing more rapid change than has historically occurred because of our own species action. But I actually have quite great faith in nature, and I'm using quotes here, nature, quote unquote, or the, the evolutionary system or the ecological system to cope with these types of changes. And I don't think it will be, it may be harmful for us. We may not like it, from almost a cultural perspective, like a, a South African person who sees bushes encroaching upon the savannas may go like, oh, this is not the way it was when I was young. And I don't like the fact that we as a species are changing things so fundamentally and it disturbs me and that's perfectly legitimate. But from a strictly biological perspective, 
I think that things are going to be okay. You know, there's there, new species will come in, new life forms will take place, new species will learn how to exploit those bushes or use them for nesting habitat or whatnot, and life will go on in some form or, or another. So a lot of the invasion science, I think, is actually motivated by social cultural values more than biological values. And that's, I think, one of the things that I don't see a lot of self-awareness among invasion biologists sort of saying, you know what? I just don't like these changes that I see because of what we call relational values. So um, for those of you who are familiar with IPBES or the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which is sort of the IPCC equivalent for biodiversity, they've come up with a really interesting taxonomy of values. And we have the traditional intrinsic values of biodiversity, so protecting biodiversity for its own sake, the ecosystem services, which are the contributions of nature to people or the good that we as a species take away from nature. But they're increasingly putting the emphasis on what are called relational values, which are also a little more difficult to quantify, but perhaps more deeply rooted in people. And they really sort of touch the people's soul and what it means to have uh, to live in a given place and a certain identity. And I think that those relational values have been vastly underestimated in their importance. And I suspect that a lot of people don't like non-native species and especially the invasive non-native species for relational reasons. And that, in my view, is completely legitimate. In other words, I'd much rather see an argument of someone saying, I don't like those species, rather than saying, I have hard evidence that that species is bad based on biological data, which of course can happen. You know, there, there are real extinctions happening due to invasive species. But sometimes I feel like the science has been warped a little bit by these cultural values. I'm just thinking about situations again, like the east coast of Brazil and the southwest coast of southern Africa and places where biodiversity is just so incredibly high. In places like that, when, when an invasive species starts becoming really invasive, at the species level, you have a lot to lose. We don't really know what's the next species that's going to give us the next solution to humankind's problems, you know, the cure for cancer or the the next major engineering solution or, or whatever it might be. I think that those cases that you describe are entirely legitimate and, and really serious. I view whether it's the, the, the rainforest or the dry forests of the eastern coast of Brazil or South Africa, like you mentioned, or any other place that has a high level of endemism. I mean, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, and I can appreciate the beauty of the process, of the evolutionary process. Like, I, it's absolutely mind boggling this totally spontaneous, unstoppable process that yields such a diversity of solutions to the problem of life. In other words, in a place that so many unique species found nowhere else in the world have managed to eke out a, a living, so to speak, and, and managed to adapt to those unique conditions. It is really amazing to see what evolution can yield in terms of, of solutions. And to see that destroyed by the arrival of a new species is legitimately heartbreaking and worthy of massive efforts to try and limit. Again, I, I think the place where I join up with my more fundamentalist invasive biology colleagues is that I actually do think that the case of invasive species should lead us to reconsider what type of global economy we want. Like I think that 
to use, I don't want to sound like an anti-capitalist, anti-free trade, but I am becoming a little bit, and there's a link here, I, I, I am becoming a little more, I guess, again, again, this is my questioning nature. Like we've been sold, our generation has been sold that free trade has done massive amounts of good of lifting people out of poverty, helping uh, developing nations reach a minimum level of comfort. And I, I, I believe that. However, what I haven't seen is I haven't seen perhaps enough questioning of what are the drawbacks of free trade and exchanges between countries. And I think the invasion, invasive species problem is a good example of a negative unintended consequence that probably no economist thought about when they were doing their little theoretical models about how free trade is good for everyone. And I think the, the presence of these invasive species in the environments that you mentioned plead in favor of maybe being a little bit more careful when we start signing free trade agreements between two regions of the world where we know that you know cargo is going to be going back and forth and there's going to be passengers in those cargoes, unintended passengers, whether they're fungi or plants or eggs of animals or whatnot. And so I think it's, um, I'm all in favor of being a little more regional in my worldview. And that's, again, a case where I think I'm not going to try and defend that those situations aren't bad. I think they truly are bad. But I think on one level, I'd like to see a more of a macro level solution where we say, okay, it's not the invasive species that are a problem. In fact, it's the humans and their moving of species around that are the trouble. So I'll give you an example. There have been, you know, like in Australia is one of the countries that has led massive eradication campaigns. Like there's a toad species called the cane toad, which was intentionally introduced to try and protect uh, some of their sugarcane crops and has since become a real problem species throughout the country because it has what's called a paratoid gland, which is a gland on its shoulder that has toxins and the native Australian animals don't recognize the toad as having this toxin in their backs. So they ingest it and they poison themselves and sometimes die. So it's a legitimate concern. But recently, the Australian authorities have been launching these public kill campaigns where people, including school children, go out and they kill these cane toads by the hundreds or the thousands. And that is something I just can't get myself to agree with. On several levels, I just don't think it's right to send kids out killing animals in the name of protecting nature. That just sends such a conflicting message. I can't understand how that's right. And on an ethical level, I mean, those cane toads didn't ask to be moved around. They were brought there by humans. And I think we are often the culprit. And it's not fair or ethical of us to turn against the species and say, you species are the problem. A little bit more sort of a reflection about how we as a human society can act differently to avoid those problems, that's perfectly legitimate. But to then turn our guns on these species and sort of say, you guys are invasive, you're gonna you're the problem, we're gonna poison you. I mean, it's a it's a it's a conflicting and it's a difficult situation to deal with, but I don't think it should be as as white and black as invasive species are bad when we carry a good part of the responsibility for what's happening. What does it mean to accept invasive species into an environment? So thinking of a particular uh, example, and whether it's a plant or, or an animal. Yeah, what, what does that actually mean? If you decide that it's better to accept it into the environment than to allocate resources into getting rid of it, how do you decide? And then what do you do? Uh, this is where things get messy. So I can only answer that question by using a really concrete example from an environment that I'm familiar with, like the Lake of Geneva. 
Like we have a number of uh, invasive species like Japanese knotweed, which is uh, an invasive species throughout large parts of North America and continental Europe, especially along uh, lake shores and river shores. And there have been some uh, attempts. It is, it is what we'd call an invasive species in that it blankets entire uh, habitats. And there have been some efforts to try and eradicate it from around the Lake of Geneva, right? Like there's this massive three-year project going on with volunteers that are ripping out the plants. And personally, I'm really skeptical of both the money and the use of volunteers to do this type of work, as long as the process, which allowed for this invasive species to implant itself in the first place, hasn't been addressed. So the Lake of Geneva, the water levels have been managed for about a century now in a very stable way, and humans are moving things around. And all you have to do is miss one tiny little pocket of an invasive plant in your so-called eradication exercise, and you miss it, and it will come right back. If the conditions were fertile for a first wave of invasion, they're probably still there for the second wave. So unless you can... Um, the only The only situation where I think an invasion deserves to be eradicated on a very limited and circumscribed habitat like a small island like there have been some successful goat eradications from small from small islands or medium-sized islands and in some cases i can see the benefits to it but in a continental environment like where i live i can't see many cases where the sustained year after year effort is worth it with some exceptions like we have we have ambrosia in our region, which is highly allergenic for some people, like the pollen can really send people to the hospital with asthma attacks. Yeah, in that case, I think the taxpayer's money is probably worthwhile to every year go out and try and cull the small pockets that are popping up. But in most other cases of a continental invasive species, learn to love them. If you can't change them, you know, join them. Uh, that's my philosophy is uh, flip things around, find the good in them. That's probably one of my most fundamental criticisms of invasion science is that invasion biologists have spent decades documenting only the negative impacts of these species and haven't spent much time at all looking at the potential social, economic, or biological benefits of these species. And my guess is that once an effort is put into looking at the flip side of the coin, the positive sides of the species, we may find that some of them aren't as bad as we thought they were. They may not be great, but they may not be so bad that they justify spending taxpayers' money to try and eradicate them. Mm. So I don't know. It's a tough situation. What do you do when the public's complaining and they're calling and there's this new uh, you know, golden rod that's spreading and we want to eradicate it? Sometimes you have to do things for communication purposes or just to placate an angry public until they learn to accept things, I think. But a little more effort on trying to find legitimate reasons for accepting these species is probably going to be the long-term solution in many cases. If you can institute something like, for example, these woody acacia species that um, have invaded Fenbos environments, so Fenbos is also woody, but you can't get firewood out of it or not much of it. And what they're doing in some places is allowing communities access to protected areas to harvest wood from the acacia species. Um, and then I think they're meant to then treat the stumps, so the trees that they cut from die eventually. So that's potentially, I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated than I've just made out. But um, if you can put a measure like that in, in place where 
there's some kind of sustainability built into the measure, then perhaps it makes more sense, right? You look skeptical. Ah, <laughs> uh, all these situations are so complicated. I mean, as soon as you talk about sustainable exploitation, some pe some people will make the legitimate counterclaim that if people become dependent on the resource, they're not going to want to eradicate it completely. Yeah. They're always going to make sure that there's enough of it left so that yeah. it sustains itself. And oh man, the human species is just a complicated species. And <laughs> all of these situations are messy and they're they're not clear cut. And I think we just at least me, I'm sort of quite at ease with accepting a level of complexity and that things are messy and that things are going to sort of sort themselves out and be all right in the long run. Okay, so that brings us to the end of that discussion, although I think this is another topic that probably deserves to be revisited at some stage. If you're interested in digging a bit deeper into this for now, have a look at the episode description for today's discussion in your podcast feed or on the relevant episode page at the Case for Conservation podcast website. There you'll find links to papers that present both views, the more traditional and the new conservationist view. Next month, I'll be having another conversation that I've been looking forward to for quite a while about Indigenous and Local Knowledge, or ILK for short. Under the UNESCO definition, ILK is the understandings, skills, and philosophies developed by societies with long histories of interaction with their natural surroundings. ILK is starting to become recognized for its important contributions to understanding and managing nature and its biodiversity. But I have a few niggling questions about the way ILK is incorporated into our broader knowledge about the natural world, and I'm keen to resolve these with the help of someone who has a fairly broad view of the topic. That someone is Jolt Molnar, a senior researcher at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences and head of the research group on traditional ecological knowledge at the Academy's Center for Ecological Research. Jolt is an expert specifically on the local component of indigenous and local knowledge, but we'll try to cover the topic fairly broadly as well, and perhaps I'll follow up with a future guest to look specifically at Indigenous knowledge. But for this upcoming episode, there are two main questions I want to ask. Firstly, how is Indigenous and local knowledge reviewed in a way that parallels the scientific peer review process? And secondly, how can ILK be considered a universal form of knowledge, considering the differences between different groups of ILK holders? and the limited geographic scope of most of these groups. I'm really looking forward to this, and I hope that you can join us. Bye for now.